Not long ago, Mikhail Saakashvili was the future, not just of Georgia, but the entire post-Soviet sphere. When he was overwhelmingly elected president in 2004, the leader of Georgia's Rose Revolution had just turned 36. He was dashing, charming, pro-Western, pro-business, anti-corruption, anti-Putin. When US President George W. Bush visited Tbilisi early in Saakashvili's term, Bush called Georgia a beacon of liberty and praised the spirit, determination and leadership of its young president. Mikhail Saakashvili is now a prisoner in a Georgian jail, serving six years for abuses of power while in office. He is clearly unhealthy, he has staged several hunger strikes and claims to have been poisoned. He was arrested after returning to Georgia in 2021, smuggled aboard a milk truck. The bizarre end to a peculiar exile which had included a period living in Brooklyn, a stint as governor of the Ukrainian oblast of Odessa, and some time in stateless limbo. Saakashvili is now a touchstone for Georgians unhappy with the recent apparent pro-Russian tilt of its governing party, Georgian Dream, founded by billionaire businessman Bidzina Ivanishvili, who looms over Tbilisi from a garish steel-and-glass hilltop fortress equipped with a helipad, private zoo and shark tank. Any Georgian government has reason to tread carefully around Russia. Russia has installed proxy regimes in two breakaway regions, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and Russia and Georgia fought a short war as recently as 2008. But is Georgian dream pursuing prudent pragmatism or craven capitulation? Could the West lose Georgia? or vice versa. And what still drives Mikhail Saakashvili? This is The Foreign Desk. It was the Georgian people who caused that revolution. It wasn't Saakashvili. And it's very easy for Georgians to forget that. The Georgian people did that revolution and they can do it again. They can, or they can do it through an election. They can fix their country. But the thing is, is that Saakashvili united all these people. If he dies in a Georgian prison, Georgia is in deep, deep trouble. When we listen to the Georgian officials, they keep talking about their commitment to take Georgia to the European Union and joining NATO. But if you look at their actions, then, of course, questions do come. What is this government doing? In whose interests is it acting? The thing that Putin doesn't like more than anything is anybody who stands up to him. And I stood up to Putin. Sergei Magnitsky stood up to Putin. And Mikhail Saakashvili stood up to Putin. He stood up to Putin when Putin invaded Georgia. And Putin was so upset by this that he said publicly, and I'll say this, it's not a nice thing to say on, on a radio station, but he, he said publicly, I want to hang Saakashvili by the balls. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, from Tbilisi by Will Cathcart, a journalist and editor who formerly served as media advisor to President Mikhail Saakashvili. Will, first of all, what do we know for certain about his condition? We know that basically poisons were found in his blood by physicians that he hired. So as a journalist, that's all I'll say. His claim is that they tried to poison him, considering the fact that Putin promised to hang him by his balls. And that's basically what we're seeing. It's very likely that he has been poisoned. He's also extremely thin, and he also did some hunger strikes. So then all of a sudden his immune system is messed up. Now he's got all kinds of weird arthritis, and he's just 
absolutely thin. I'm sure you've seen pictures, but you're looking at the shell of a man. I mean, it's terrifying. You obviously know about Saakashvili. Saakashvili, you know, is this larger-than-life figure. And when you see that figure, just the husk of what he was, there's a message there. You have the insight of having seen the larger-than-life figure up close. You worked for the man. What was that experience like? How much difference is there between the public persona of Saakashvili, which is this extremely rumbustious, as you put it, larger-than-life character, and what he's actually like? <laughs> it's remarkably accurate. At his best, he is a like a Clinton with courage or, you know, a Kennedy without the entitlement. He is extraordinarily intelligent. He has insatiable appetites. He's larger than life. He's a bull in a china shop from the way he eats to the way he talks, the charisma and everything. So when you take a, you have a failed state like Georgia, he's probably the only man in the world who could have transformed it the way he did and as quickly as he did, while also firing two thirds of the police force, making a lot of enemies and just, again, the energy that the guy has. But that can also be to his detriment, obviously. So many people uh, who know about such, when they think of him, they think of him as this sort of divisive figure, as you said, this very like sort of a bombastic figure and all that. And I understand why, but what people are missing is that at the beginning, Saakashvili was a unifier. Saakashvili brought all these disparate forces together. He brought the Mingrelians, the Ajarans, all these different power factions together to have this revolution. And he led it. But it was the Georgian people who caused that revolution. It wasn't Saakashvili. And it's very easy for Georgians to forget that. The Georgian people did that revolution and they can do it again or they can do it through an election. They can fix their country. But the thing is, is that Saakashvili united all these people. So I think it's very strange when I hear that. But the other thing is, if he dies in prison, even the people who consider themselves his political enemies will be taken aback. If he dies in a Georgian prison, Georgia is in deep, deep trouble. As a person who has a family here, kids and everything, I truly fear, not just for him personally, but for what would happen if he dies in Georgian prison. Do you know if, on more sober reflection, he had any regrets about his time in office, perhaps especially pertaining to the war with Russia in 2008? Rightly or wrongly, it's quite widely seen as something he was suckered into that a calmer head might have been able to avoid. As far as regrets, I'll address the war in a second, but absolutely. He came out after he left and made a series of apologies. The things he apologized for are not the things that he's in jail for because he's in jail for politically motivated charges. Of course, he did things wrong and he knows that. He also said that he felt like the Georgian people were tired of him, which I think is very true. You know, for a while there, he just, you know, the guy didn't stop talking. He was there and he's on you know every television screen all the time. As far as the war... For so long, and as a journalist who came here right before the war, I came here in July 2008, I wrote a series, and I talked to a bunch of smart people who said it was happening. Basically, Condi had just been here, and the Russians had buzzed their meeting place, and shelling was picking up in all the breakaway areas. It was just inevitable. Several years later, Putin came out and said he planned this war. So everyone loves to say that he fell into a trap, and that was sort of the all these experts sort of wanted to say, which was to shift the blame on him. And in a lot of ways, I, I think the U.S. government needed to shift that blame because otherwise 
we're talking about potentially having to react. The U.S. government did not want an armed conflict with Russia. It does not want an armed conflict with Russia now. So it was a lot easier just to sort of say, oh, it's Saakashvili's personality. He stumbled into it, blah, blah, blah. But especially now with what we've seen in Ukraine, that's not really the case. It wasn't a trap. It was a planned invasion. So does he regret the war? Everyone regrets the war. I mean, my God, I'm sure he would say that he would have done anything in the world to stop it. But at a certain point, you have to defend your country. And it was very obvious then that exactly what's happening in Ukraine was happening in Georgia, you know? And so when your country's already under attack and because of what you stand for, they chose to fight back. And, you know, that's not a Saakashvili thing. That's a Georgian thing. The Georgians have been fighting against the Russians for a very long time. What have you made of his post-presidency career, though? Most notably, this extraordinary, indeed, bizarre decision to become the governor of a state in another country entirely, this being Odessa in Ukraine. What was going on there, do you think? So, you know, the timeline, we saw Saakashvili leave and he went to, you know, Brooklyn and everyone said he became a hipster. And I think, again, we're going back to this man who is fiercely intelligent who sees Russia for what it is, who sees the larger playing field. And what people don't realize is that Zagashvili spent a lot of his life in Ukraine. He studied there. He is fluent in Ukrainian. So I don't think it was an unusual or a strange step at all for him to become the governor of Odessa because Odessa, Odessa is my favorite city on earth. It is one of the most corrupt cities on earth. It was. Let's just hope it still exists. So if you want to try to reform a place like that, the only man in the world who's come close to doing anything like that is Mikhail Saakashvili. So I don't see that as a departure at all. And he was extraordinarily popular. He remains extraordinarily popular. So that was not so, to me, that's not so strange. It was actually stranger to see him, you know, riding a bicycle in Brooklyn. Will Cathcart, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and joining me here in the studio is someone who understands better than most what life is like on the receiving end of Vladimir Putin's grudges. Bill Browder, founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and author of the books Red Notice and Freezing Order. Bill, first of all, you have been outspoken in defence of Mikhail Saakashvili recently. I was wondering if your point of identification with him is your own understanding of what it's like to know that you are personally very much on Vladimir Putin's list. My sympathy for Mikhail Saakashvili comes from my experience with the slow torture and assassination of my own lawyer, my Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was killed in a Russian prison after 358 days of torture where he lost 20 kilos and he was denied medical attention. And the slow, terrible deterioration of Sergei, which led to his death, of course, traumatized me and his family and everybody close to him. And when I saw a picture of Mikhail Saakashvili, the president of Georgia, after he had been effectively tortured in Georgian prison, it just brought back all of my own feelings about how terrible it is for someone to be treated like that. And when I saw these pictures of him, I thought, you know, I don't want this guy to die. 
And I actually tweeted out these pictures, and he wrote to me a letter from prison saying, please help me. I'm dying. They'll kill me if the West doesn't do anything. So what is your read then on what Georgia's government thinks it's doing? If you see parallels between Saakashvili's situation and that of Sergei Magnitsky, does it strike you as a similar exercise in intimidation? Yeah, it's just more or less the same thing. And so, well, so what's going on in Georgia? You have a government which has effectively been compromised by Russia after Saakashvili was democratically defeated when Ivanshvili became the new prime minister. Ivanshvili is a guy who made billions of dollars in Russia. He's totally beholden to the Putin regime. At any point, they could come after him, come after his money. He's a Putin guy. And so he becomes the prime minister. And the government has since, he's no longer in the government, but most people I know in Georgia believe that he's the one pulling the strings Mm. behind. So effectively, what you have is a Russian sympathetic regime in Georgia. The thing that that Putin doesn't like more than anything is anybody who stands up to him. And I stood up to Putin. Sergei Magnitsky stood up to Putin. And Mikhail Saakashvili stood up to Putin. He stood up to Putin when Putin invaded Georgia. And Putin was so, so upset by this that he said publicly, and I'll say this, it's not a nice thing to say on on a radio station, but he he said publicly, I want to hang Saakashvili by the balls. But on that thought, and this may be a bit of a reach, but do you see parallels not just between Saakashvili and Sergei Magnitsky, but between Saakashvili and Volodymyr Zelensky, that these are two of a particular character type which irks Vladimir Putin at a quite visceral level? They are quite breezy, cheerful, larger-than-life, Western-facing, modern politicians. Absolutely, 100% parallel. If Putin can achieve his goal of slowly killing and, and effectively and, and ending the life of Saakashvili after this horrible ordeal, it's a message to Zelensky, which is, you can stand up to me now. In the same way as Saakashvili stood up to Putin when, when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. And the message is to Zelensky, you know, we're going to come for you and we're going to kill you in the same way. You know, you may be, you know, a darling of the West right now and everybody is protecting you, but we, the dictatorship of Russia will survive longer than the West will support you, and, and one day will come for you, and one day when we control the Ukrainian government, we will slowly torture you to death. That's the message. Is there anything where Saakashvili is concerned then that can or should be done now? I mean, one would assume that the European countries have a certain amount of leverage over Georgia, which at least in terms of rhetoric and indeed by constitutional obligation is attempting to seek membership of NATO and the EU. Could or should Tbilisi be told if anything happens to this man, you are going some way towards the back of the queue? Well, I think that, that it should be worse than that for Georgia, that, that the, the message to the current government of Georgia is that if Saakashvili were to die, then every single person who is involved both directly and indirectly will be added to a sanctions list for the rest of their lives and that Georgia will have no chance of joining any international body that they would want to join because <laughs> we don't allow countries in that kill their former presidents in politically motivated assassinations. Bill Browder, thank you for joining us on the Foreign Desk. (laughs) 
You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio and joining me now from Tbilisi for a look at the wider political situation is Rehan Dimitri, the BBC's correspondent in the South Caucasus and Central Asia. Rehan, let's talk first of all about these demonstrations which have mostly, as I understand it, been rallied in support of Mikhail Saakashvili. How big have they been and how significant do they seem in the general Georgian context of these things? Well, the protests on April 9th were not as big as the month before when Georgia made international headlines with the mass protests on March 7th and 8th against so-called foreign agents law. But still, it was significant. It was the first big rally organized by the country's largest opposition party, the United National Movement. And they came out with three demands. First one was the fulfillment of 12 recommendations made by the European Union to Georgia so that Georgia can get its candidate status, given that it missed on that chance back in June 2022 when Ukraine and Moldova got their candidate status After that, the EU issued 12 recommendations. So Georgia is now in the process of going through those recommendations. The second demand was the release of the jailed former president, Mikhail Saakashvili, who is the founder of the United National Movement of the main opposition party. And the third demand was the release of the sole protester, Lazare Grigorialis, who was arrested after the March protest. He's accused of throwing petrol bombs at the police and is potentially facing up to 11 years in jail. I think what is perhaps slightly baffling to the passing listener, and it's certainly slightly baffling to me, is what Georgia's government is currently trying to accomplish where Russia's concerned. Is it just that thing of desperately trying to avoid a confrontation and therefore submitting itself to whatever it is Russia imposes? Or is Georgian Dream actually trying to edge away from those ambitions of joining NATO and the EU, enshrined though they are in Article 78 of Georgia's constitution? Well, it's also baffling to me, Andrew, and I think to a lot of people here in Georgia, When we listen to the Georgian officials going and talking, international forums and so on, they keep talking about their commitment to take Georgia to the European Union and one day, you know, joining NATO. But on the other hand, if you look at their actions, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, then, of course, questions do come. What is this government doing? In whose interest is it acting? Georgia, for example, chose not to support sanctions against Russia. And the government here had a point. They're saying, look, we absolutely depend economically on Russia. We're a small country. And if we're imposing sanctions, then we're going to hurt ourselves first and foremost. But then on the other hand, they had this kind of open door policy for tens of thousands of Russians that were escaping from Russia. And that caused a considerable concern among the Georgian population because Everybody remembers that back in 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, when Russia and Georgia had a war which lasted for five days, the pretext was from Vladimir Putin 
and Dmitry Medvedev at the time that they are coming to defend their citizens. So that is a big concern for Georgians that having so many Russians living now, residing in Georgia, could be used as a pretext. The Georgian government says that its approach to Russia is pragmatic. This is the word that they use to describe the relations. But if you look at the rhetoric that is coming from senior Georgian politicians, from the prime minister, from the head of the governing Georgian Dream Party, they keep talking about, you know, the West and the US wanting to open the second front, that the West wants to drag Georgia into this war. And that kind of plays into the fears that people genuinely have in this country because they had a war with Russia and they don't want to fight with Russia. But yes, I would say that many Georgians believe that this government is somehow acting in Russia's interests. Are there concerns that Georgia might actually, even if by accident, plant itself in the Russian camp? We have seen the United States this week sanctioning four current or former Georgian judges, which when you think back to the presidency of Mikhail Saakashvili, when Georgia was one of the most out and proud pro-US countries in Eastern Europe, Western Asia, the Caucasus, in fact, probably the most out and proud pro-American country in that region, that is an extraordinary reverse. It's very different. I would say when Mikhail Saakashvili was in power, Georgia was very clearly pro-Western and very, very anti-Russian. Right now, it is a pragmatic approach. We hear things from the Georgian officials that somehow are similar to what people hear from Russian propagandists. Or when Russian officials, including the Russian foreign minister, comes out and praises the Georgian government for their approach, It really makes a lot of people here cringe. You know, why is Russia praising the Georgian government? Why Vladimir Salavyov, one of the main Russian propagandists, is praising the Georgian prime minister, you know, for having the balls, for standing up to the West. So it all is really confusing for a lot of people. But I would say Georgia is a very polarized nation. And those who support the opposition or do not support the current government, they are absolutely confident that this government is acting in Russia's interests. Those who support the government, they believe that they're doing the right thing because you can't anger this big bear to the north, you know, with whom you had the war just 14 years ago. Just finally, then, we do probably have to introduce the singular character of Bidzina Ivanishvili, who is the billionaire founder of Georgian Dream. Elections are due in Georgia next year. Does he not appear concerned that, you know, Georgian Dream could lose power over this? Well, a lot of things that we've seen happening, you know, this mass protest back in March 7 and 8 with this foreign agents law, which the government tried to pass, tens of thousands of people, mainly young students, they came out to protest because they saw it as a government's attempt to sabotage Georgia's chances of joining the EU. But internally, those observers, you know, analysts who kind of look and analyze the politics here, they said that this was a step towards the next elections because the opposition here is quite fragmented. So In a way, the opposition doesn't represent a serious threat to the governing party, whereas 
NGOs, non-governmental organizations against which this foreign agents law was designed, because according to the law, any organization that receives more than 20% of its funding, and that's the majority of Mm. NGOs, they would have to declare themselves or label themselves as acting in the interest of foreign power. We know that Russia has a similar law, and it's used this law over the years In today's Russia, anyone who criticizes the war in Ukraine is labeled foreign agents. So the understanding was here that that law was an attempt to kind of control the non-governmental organizations that still hold these government to account. They criticize the government. They look at the policies. I think it will be quite an interesting elections because no party in Georgia won as many times as Georgian Dream. You've mentioned Bidzina Ivanishvili, a big figure in Georgian politics, even though officially he left politics Mm. two years ago, he made this big announcement. But there's a very kind of deep belief that he continues to influence a lot of things in Georgian politics because, just one example, the current prime minister is his former secretary. And the current interior minister is his former security detail. And over the past 10 years, we had a number of high level politicians who come from the immediate circle of Bidzina Ivanishvili. Rehan, thank you. That was the BBC's correspondent in the South Caucasus and Central Asia, Rehan Dimitri. Finally on today's show, a look at the implications of Georgia's current predicament for Abkhazia and South Ossetia, two regions which remain technically Georgian territory, but which have for some time functioned as de facto states, if recognised as such only by Russia, Russian allies Syria, Nicaragua and Venezuela, and for some entrancingly Baroque reason or other, Nauru. Well, joining us now from Yerevan uh, is Olesia Vartanian, senior analyst for the South Caucasus region at the International Crisis Group, with a particular research focus on Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Olesia, first of all, if we think back to last February when Russia attacked Ukraine, has anything changed at all in Abkhazia or South Ossetia since then as a result? You know, the local people, they are really very worried about what will be their future. They do not really understand what Russia is up to. Does it mean that Russia is going to become weaker? Does it mean that Russia will not really have enough resource to protect them in case of a new attack? So that has been kind of a standing mood, I would say, since the very beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I personally have been receiving quite a lot of messages, text messages, and also calls from both breakaways of people I know who were asking me constantly, like, does it mean that Georgia is going to attack it? What do you think? Does it mean that we are to expect a new war? That's probably the main change that I have seen so far. Because prior to February, and it's a long time since I was last in Abkhazia, that was about 2005, but even then it was very much like travelling between countries. It did feel very cut off from Georgia. Is that still the case? Do they still operate and see themselves as entirely self-contained entities? 
Yeah, I think uh, since 2005, it has this kind of profound difference between two places has become even more spectacular. Whenever I travel between uh, Georgia proper and Abkhazia itself, I feel like I'm getting to absolutely different universe. It's like, uh, you know, time has stopped there. And in many cases, you can see the remnants of this late Soviet era that are still so spectacular. And even the younger generation, they still have to live in this architecture architecture and even the moods, I would say, you know, they haven't changed much since the early 90s. Since Russia recognized Abkhazia and another breakaway region, South Ossetia, the gap uh, between Georgians and Abkhaz, Georgians and South Ossetians, it has become even bigger and travel does not happen very often. And in a way, they became more distant. Is there any dialogue, any conversation at all between Georgia's government and the de facto governments in Abkhazia and South Ossetia? There is an official negotiation process going on when the guys meet several times a year. This happens with mediators, with Russians present, with Americans present. In addition to that, there are some kind of follow-up meetings that are taking place every month, which are more about like situation on the ground. But certainly, there are also informal channels. On the one hand, it's happening through some trusted people, some informal envoys, you know, people who are kind of helping to negotiate or to resolve some of the issues. We know some of these informal envoys, some of them are kind of staying behind the scene and you never ever hear their names. On top of it, there are also contacts taking place at the level of a civil society. And it very much kind of depends on whether the local leaderships want to hear to with society representatives who meet each other from time to time and exchange ideas and also kind of information about what can be done. You mentioned earlier the fear that you've heard about from people in Abkhazia and South Ossetia about what the future holds for them. Do you get any sense that Georgia's government sees an opportunity here? Has there been even any talk anywhere on the fringes of trying to take Abkhazia and South Ossetia back while Russia is distracted? Not at all. And then this is something that I don't think uh, is going to change anytime soon. The 2008 war was a huge shock to Georgia when they saw the Russian tanks rolling into the country. And after that, the Georgian position has finally been that Georgia wants uh, to restore its territorial integrity, wants to bring back Abkhazia and Sawasidia, but only for negotiations. And only a crazy person would start a war against Russia, I would say, you know. The other aspect of that is that, you know, since 2008 war, Georgia in the beginning had huge problems with uh, purchasing weaponry just because there was some sort of informal embargo on, on the Georgian government. And when the time changed and we saw some foreign states being ready to start selling weapons to Georgia, I would say that that was a very different time already. And also the Georgian government, in a way, they prefer to sustain contacts with Russia rather than to prepare fighting it. And right now in Georgia, many people speak about the possibility of change of the government. Uh, You can see also the leadership speculating about that. And then one of the things that both camps are discussing is what if there is a change in the leadership? Does it mean that Georgia will change its policies and will start preparing for the war? I think it's absolutely not possible to happen just because 
on the one hand, the Georgian government will need like years to train its army, to purchase enough weaponry and all of that. And on the other, I mean, even from the side of Russia, it will take Russia very little to destabilize Georgia just because it's so well present now in both Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In some places, you can see Russian representative just meters away from the main highways in Georgia. You just can see them physically. But Russia withdrew much of its heavy weaponry from Abkhazia and South Ossetia to send them to Ukraine. And I don't think that it will have enough resource to bring them back anytime soon either. So in a way, with this like the period, you know, what can diplomats also potentially make use of? Of course, if the sides are able to sustain with relative stability along the lines. I mean, do we know what those regimes in Abkhazia and South Ossetia actually want? Do they want to be incorporated into Russia? Would they quite like to return to Georgia? Do they merely want to be independent states? We did see that strange situation last summer where South Ossetia's new president, Alan Gagloev, ditched a referendum they were due to have on joining Russia. I think the main goal in both Abkhazia and South Ossetia is in a way to live through with the difficult period that they now face because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They are already much more dependent on Russia than 15 years ago when Russia recognized them as independent states, although very few followed its case. So in a way, they would prefer to keep their current stance when they receive funding, they have Russian military present, more or less kind of on the ground. They have a political support, but they don't become essential part of Russia when they just be one small province inside Russia without their own say on anything that has to do with them. That doesn't mean that they are ready to turn towards Georgia. Some of them voice kind of ideas about like more trade, more cooperation, more movement, more transit. But it's more about like we want to make more money and make our lives better. It's not about let's live together. I don't think that it's going to change anytime soon in this current situation that we have. Alessia Vartanian, thank you very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.